0: You ball-
1: P.M. singing. Mm. Guess what? Ah, 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 ah.
2: Hanson does this to him.
1: Ah, Music Biz 101. And more. more. Here on Brave New Radio, the only radio station in America that is brave, Dr. Esteban Marconi.
2: And my co-host. My co-host, Professor Philp.
1: You wouldn't know it—that I'm your co-host or that I'm your professor David Kirk Phil. Yep, <laughs> exactly. That's, That's how what I, feel. I said. Yeah, so I'm your professor David Kirk philp We're here with your doctor Esteban, Mark Carney. and we're also here with Ashley Veltner, our German engineer. Hello, engineer, uh, engineer Ashley Veltner. She's mute, um, but <laughs> she's still the best engineering has to offer. We she have was
2: testing Mercedes today.
1: Yes, that, mm-hmm. she actually was doing that. Uh, right. She's got the Mercedes Benz. From what song, Andy Leff? She's got the Mercedes Benz. Yes, Hotel California by Los uh, Eagles. And we're here with Kaylee Cheryl, Kaylee Sherrill, who's here all the way from Ohio. Good to what have a you a here. Trip. Yeah, she made it all here in five minutes. And then we're here with Andy Leff, mm-hmm. who formerly of APA, the agency, formerly artist manager. We're gonna talk in depth with Andy, and Andy's gonna have the greatest time of his life. At this radio station, at this time, and is your family listening right now? They are not. As my family, I just say uh, we have Beyonce on the radio tonight, and then they um, they don't, listen, still, to, they don't they, listen to
3: me when I'm at home.
1: They're certainly not going to tune in. <laughs> no, no, it's funny. So uh, this is so. All right. So Music Biz one, one, and more. Yes, and we got a big show today. Big show. It's, it's huge. Yes. show. It's bonus. Um, just because we have a studio in uh, in in studio guest. Yes. Yes. About time again. It's good for us. Follow us on the web, musicbiz101wp.com. Sign up for that newsletter that comes out every week at 6 p.m. on your Sunday. You can follow us on the Instagram, the Twitter, the Fest of the Book, at musicbiz101wp. And this will be a podcast. You're, most of you are probably hearing the podcast right now on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. Mm-hmm. Would you like to give thanks, Dr. Esteban? Oh, Is it that can. time? We want to th- give thanks to the good folks at Van Dyne, Bruno, Inc., and White Hat Management. With artists like Dave Matthews, Three Doors Down, St. Vincent, and Kiss, there's only one place to go for your band's business management. (laughs) Even when I speak slowly, I can't do it. Go to VB... CPA.com when you're ready. And our Thanks. Also, go out to Christine Bay wealth major for the president of Vay Wealth Management. Christine has helped many of our professionals. William Patterson managed their investments planner for their retirement. If you're looking for some guidance on how to plan for your retirement, if you have questions on re- investments, portfolio management, your service retirement, Christine call at repeat after me, Kaylee 732 455 1000 500 and 10. And- Somebody like us could also email her, christine at oi. veywealth.com for advisement. Yeah.
2: Leave the last oi off for savings.
1: That's all we ever ask of our listeners here on Brave New Radio, Music Business 101 and more. By the way, managing your band, 6th edition, El Edicion Numero 6, is out and available for your reading pleasure. hmm uh-huh. By the way, Dr. Stamon, did you know William Patterson, the university... Our music and entertainment industries program, undergraduate, minor, and also most, I was going to say most valuable player, but that'd be <laughs> MVP, MBA, <All> right. <clears throat> Masters of Business Admin. It's ranked one of the best in the country by Billboard magazine.
2: Yes, I did know that.
1: Well, that's good to know. Yes. Did you know, Dr. Stavon Marconi, that this is the fifth year of our show, Music Biz 101?
2: That I didn't know. So now I do. Now you do. Happy Uh, birthday, Esteban! And was it always on Brave New Radio? The number one radio station in the country for colleges over 10,000 students. Are
1: you talking about Marconi Award winning Brave New Radio? Yes, I am. Yes. Where else would we be?
2: Well, I would be here because I'm Marconi, so...
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's your own award, my friend. That's right. Enough of this fun. Let's Uh get into the serious part of the show. Okay. And, uh... Andy, left. Why don't you do some talking to, with him?
3: Okay, Andy. Uh, <laughs> okay. You' great, great to be here at the great. Morning Zoo. <laughs> you were with uh, you were with APA. I was with APA
2: a- Agency for the Performing Arts. That is correct. Uh, was the structure um, of the organization one like the old agencies where an agent had control over certain territory or a certain um, Specific, let's say, book lectures or something, or the Northeast College or whatever. And uh, it was structured that way so that you were assigned or maybe you picked up an artist and you were the go-to agent for that artist, uh, but also you were in charge of uh, a territory.
3: Yes. Um, I. One of the things that surprised me when I was there was that that system is still in existence. It seems definitely a vestige of the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't involved in it. I had, I, my artists, I had all territories around the world. I didn't deal with any of the regional stuff, but that is the primary way that that is structured. Right. understanding Is that many agencies still work that way.
2: Cause I can recall when, uh, when I was doing this full time, uh, it was always told to us that it's still a very political animal. So, For instance, our agent, I believe, was Northeast College at um, ICM and was very friendly with Midwest College agents. So we played the hell out of the Midwest Colleges, but we never got up to the far north, far far west north, let's say, because they didn't talk. So is there any type of a, uh, I don't know, a prescription you might say to an artist when they're looking for agencies that may
3: sort of shed some light for them? Well, I would say coming from the other side, coming from the management side, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to have an agency that was set up that way. I would want one person who was dedicated to me, like a manager who was going to book all my gigs and all my places, who would have the continuity over the course of a particular thing and not having it farmed out to separate people who may have 20 other artists from 20 other agents mm-hmm. on their plate at the same time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, 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 I asked about that, this, this, the regional system. It seems very antiquated. It is a vestige of the kind of old-school right. agencies. But as an artist, I would be reluctant to have that kind of system. I wouldn't feel that my interests were being, as, being represented as best they could.
2: But there is a plus side to that, of course, is if there is a, an artist you want to be the opening act for, and then now they're on tour in the Midwest with that one agent, and you're going to try to get your artist on that tour and you only have to deal with that one agent for that tour instead of trying to do it yourself because you are centrally the,
3: that artist's agent. It could be that way. I mean, in my manager years, I would always deal with the man on the managerial side. I would do the same thing. I would get in touch with the, the manager of the uh, group that was on the tour. I, I don't see that that's necessarily an agent function versus mm-hmm, a management. function.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
3: Um, but there is, there is some overlap there. Right. Um, I never, in my time as an agent, I did never was able to take advantage of that system. Right, all, all the all the tours that my bands opened up for were a result of dealing with managers, not agents.
2: And agencies get uh, a certain percentage of each
3: gig. They do. Uh, they get ten percent generally, of, right, of the gross, in, unless
2: they are unless the the act is so strong. It can demand that
1: they're going to get less. That is correct. Yeah. When you said gross, though, adjusted gross, is that before the taxes not. are... No, of the
3: guarantee, no, that, okay. that's like, you know, it, it's a different structure. As a manager, I I chose to get uh, my commission was based on net profit mm-hmm. because I didn't think it was right. I know a lot of managers do commission on gross. I find that kind of unethical. Uh, but on the agent side, it doesn't matter, you know, what... what how how things go if the artist loses money on the tour i mean a lot of my artists as a manager lost a lot of money on the tour so i would be you know commissioning on a net profit of zero mm-hmm. so from the agent side it's much better cuz you don't have to worry it doesn't matter if the band makes you know a lot or loses a lot on the tour that 10% is a static right. number. and they hold the first check and they, they hold, hold the first deposit, check, right, the deposit
1: right and that's right it's,
3: built, it's baked so they, it's baked in as they say they have
2: and,
1: their money yes yeah, right you, you go ahead you just mentioned um you felt it was unethical for the manager to take um take it off the gross so what why what makes you think that and and what experience i
3: i came into the world of managing bands as a fluke i didn't have any experience at it otherwise i was an attorney uh <clears throat> and i had my own set of ethical rules that i needed to follow and when I started to be a manager, I needed to, to feel... And I needed my artist to feel that I was invested in the band along with them. And there's a notion or the concept of a manager earning more money than the band... Mm-hmm. That is, I, I find, uh, is anathema to, to my personal ethics. Which is not to say that, you know, if it's okay with other bands and okay with other managers, that's fine. But to me, you as a manager... Do as well as the band is doing and the way you do that is by commissioning on net profit so the more work you put into it, the more successful that you help with the band the more you'll get uh, there would have been situations if i if I had been commissioning as a manager on gross I would have been making more money than the band mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been able to to live with yourself yeah
2: it's just not would have changed uh, his name to Irving yes. we won't get that <laughs> yes
3: <idea. laughs> right um so, I felt very strongly about that, and I, I i was surprised to find out that I was actually in a in a very small minority of managers that felt that way, and mm-hmm. a lot of managers who I dealt with thought that I was crazy for doing that, but I n- never was any ambiguity about that to me and the
2: and the third way, of course, is uh if I remember correctly, Paul
3: McGuinness did this with you two he was the fifth member of the the band, and he took. Well, that's how, right, with with one of my artists, that's how we did it. One of my artists was primarily a a touring band, and that's how that arrangement was, is that we Mm -hmm. all got the same amount. But Mm -hmm. there should never be, again, it's just my personal ethics, I don't think there should ever be a situation where a manager Mm. is earning more than a band member.
1: We just had uh, Jake Posner, who's the manager of a band called Arizona, and um, he's like that. There are uh, three members, full-time members of the band and him, and their agreement is all four. They treat each other as the same, just like you just said. With yeah. I mean, as
3: long as it's always consensual between the artist and the manager, that's you know I'm not, I don't pass judgment on other mm-hmm. bands' right. arrangements. I, you know, we all have our own our own way of doing things, and if it's okay with the band, then if it's okay with the manager, and it's not exploitative, then you know, whatever works for everybody's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the other thing uh, about a manager that I've been
2: sort of one of my little uh, soap ops, uh, soap soap box things is that a manager should not have another job in other words he's going to be a manager he can manage 10 bands 20 bands i don't care but he can't have a this day job when that band or artist is starving and they're eating a mcdonald's and he has that day job income coming in and then he manages uh I agree on with,
3: the side. I agree with that as well. And as a matter of fact, I, I it was very difficult for me when I started manage. I started off with one band, and when I started taking on other bands, it actually it was I was very conflicted about it because I felt that all of my energy and all of my attention should be on,
1: on the just one the band. one. Wow. And I
3: felt like I was cheating on my band when I took on other clients. Right. It was it was that was very hard for me. So
1: But you were I mean, able to do it. I was able to do How it. How were you able to get over that feeling?
3: Um I just worked harder at it so i convinced myself i mean i did the work but i convinced myself and 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 that i was not giving any less to my original band i was just working extra for the additional bands mm. so you know i can't right. i quantify that i was working 50 hours a week for my band for example i wouldn't work any less for them at the expense it wasn't a zero-sum gain i just wanted up sleeping less
2: right but
1: and also i'm sorry
2: no, I, was, I was just gonna say but there is a bunch of positives by having other Bands on your right, roster, and Right, and
1: you
3: turned it right. And I had leverage yeah. in it. Yeah, and I, I parlayed, you know, sure. what was going on. So so it worked out fine, but it was it was difficult for me. It was difficult for me to do that. And, and you know, I had a very small roster. I, I turned down, I literally turned down hundreds of bands in my time as a manager. I was very selective, you know, because if, uh, I think one of the most important things is that if you don't have a passion, like a great passion for your band, if you don't believe in everything that they do, and you're willing to, like, go to the mat for them, then it's not worth it taking on. Mm-hmm. And there were very few bands I felt that way about.
4: Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I,
3: I, limited myself in that regard. I, w- I wasn't one of these, I mean, I knew managers that had way too many artists, that there was no way they were giving the proper attention to each artist because they wanted more, they wanted to build up their rosters. They wanted to, you know, parlay the cachet from mm-hmm. one band to another, and they were just over, overextending themselves. And I thought that was always really unfair to the artists. So I kept my, I, I never had more than five artists on my roster at any time.
1: We had an interesting interview. Uh, we go out to Nashville each year to the Music Biz Convention, and we interviewed, I can't, I wish I could remember her name. She's an artist manager. She has oh, yeah. three artists. She she also does some adjunct teaching at Belmont, I think. Yeah. Um, it was a very good interview, but what she says, because she has three artists, um, you have cycles. So there are periods of time where, and these are Americana artists, so we're not talking necessarily about pop, pop stars, yeah, right. you know, who mm-hmm. are going to uh, be on... The Kame com- commercial is that a soap? Kame. <laughs> Pretend it's a soap on a soap commercial. Yeah, but yeah like, like one artist may be pregnant or might be off for a year. You know, mm-hmm. so she ha- she would have nothing to do, basically. Um, and so what she does is she would have these three artists and just make sure each day she spent X amount of time, no matter what, on that artist. So every artist would get, let's say, two hours a day. Then whoever needed additional time in that particular day, they would get it, just because. You just kind of was rolling with how the business was flowing too, mm-hmm. and that's how she did it. Yeah, right, right. yeah. I mean, we so. all do it different. Like, I, you know,
3: because I, I uh, because of the way I I manage, which is a, was very non-traditional, I wound up taking on a lot of roles and doing a lot of stuff, so that even for one band, I was working, you know, fourteen hours a day dedicated to one band, doing more things than most managers do. Just like what, I'm for manager. example? Just you know. Um, just talking, writing fans, you know, uh, one of my bands would get hundreds of emails a month, and I'd write back to every single fan, and that's a very labor-intensive job, and there's never one that I didn't write back to, you know, which was, you know, rife with all sorts of other issues, because then, of course, everybody, every fan had a demo they wanted to send me, and, <laughs> you know, started, you know, wanting to build a relationship with me as a way to get it closer to the band. But so that's, that's one thing I did.
1: So you were writing back as the band manager. You were yes. not writing back as oh, no, no, no. this I would sort never, of no, no. Band, man, no, no. band member. Never,
3: would never do that. Um, but then again, because after, uh, after my original, after my first album cycle experience with my main band who was on Atlantic, I wound up outsourcing everything. And so I was overseeing, the PR I was overseeing, the the promotion I was overseeing, you know, a lot of the touring. Like, uh, you know, after my first experience on a major label, I swore I would never deal with a major label or its employees again in terms of promoting the band. And so that's I, I wound up taking on a lot of those those jobs with mm-hmm. this particular band. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, and with a
2: without a track record, and you walk into a major label as a manager. What are some of the key things you can do to gain a respect of that label
3: before they even celebrate? Uh- fake it. Fake it very well, <laughs> which is what I did. I, you know, I, I was I was telling Dave beforehand when I by a, a bizarre set of circumstances, I wound up getting a, a a band, an offer from a major label from Atlantic and the a and r guy called me to his office the the next day, and I had no idea I had no experience in the music business, I had no idea what he was doing. And the first question he asked me was, "What royalty rate do you want and I didn't even know what a royalty rate was. I had no idea what he mm-hmm. was talking about, but I faked it very well, and I wound up actually getting a good <laughs> good royalty rate it's 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 hard to do that um but to be more specific, I think being straightforward, being honest, being ethical and and not not overplaying your hand as a way to gain respect like i had a rapport with the a and r person that i was dealing with we had a lot of common musical interests and background and we really hit it off the first time we met so in my case that was that was kind of the entree towards gaining respect you know Mm -hmm. i I met this a and r guy and one day and, and after three hours we were we were debating who was the best uriah heat bass player of the five Uriah bass players. Like, it was that kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. And I've, and actually, I've always had really, of all the the industry people I've dealt with, I've always had very positive relationships with A&R guys because it's, you know, at the end of the day, when we take our, you know, manager hat off and our A&R guy, we're just like music nerds. And that's really a way to, to, to gain respect and gain credibility mm-hmm. by knowing what you're talking about. Now, A&R has changed drastically
2: since the internet uh, do you want to talk a little bit about uh, the changes you've
3: seen I, I as a fan of music growing up I didn't really I never really knew what an NR guy was or an R person was and then when I started meeting them I realized that they were really the gatekeepers mm-hmm. of what I was listening to you know I was I, I was a child of the 1970s and so everything that I heard and everything that I liked was what was being played on the local radio stations in Albany, New York, you know, Picks mm-hmm. One Hundred and Six, um, and it didn't. I didn't find out until later on that the reason that my radio station was playing Jethro Tull, was playing Led Zeppelin, was playing The Who, was because that was all being filtered through record labels, and and through record labels that was being filtered through A and R guys, who were really the gatekeepers, the ones who, who really filtered out the the wheat from the chaff and decided more or less what I would be listening to. Mm-hmm. And so that was really, at that time, that was really arguably the most important job at a record label because that, that really defined what people listened to. As my time went on, I met a lot of other A&R guys who were, who were not as well-versed in that. I actually knew a guy who worked at a major label who had been an A&R guy for 10 years and had never actually signed Single band, mm. and he was able to sustain his career by wow. never having a failure because he never <laughs> right. signed a band. That's it's it. true, and it was really yeah. it was really amazing to me. He's actually going to be a character in, 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 in your book bo- in the book because it's really it's like a character that you couldn't make up if it wasn't true. Right. But he had never he had never in in ten years signed a single act, and yet he had a senior position as a R guy at this major label, hmm. um, <laughs> and, and and so. It's a different it's a different job now, too, because the music's different now and what you were filtering for back then is not what you're filtering for now. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you don't need an A&R guy. Bands don't need to be filtered anymore because everybody's on streaming services. There's there is no filter anymore, mm-hmm. which I would argue is a bad thing. You know, people used to always decry the big bad label and the big bad A&R guy. But I think people are more nostalgic for that now than they would otherwise be because I think you need that filter. And the A&R guys who I had the best relationships with had great ears and were such total music guys that you just trusted their judgment. And, you, mm-hmm. you know, so.
1: Well, I think yeah. some of the filter, though, is like Spotify, the filter is they create their own playlists and they have their own people who are curating these playlists. Um, yeah, and you don't agree. I don't. I mean, that means not. So, Why? You know, well. 'Cause that's would you that's like the new radio to a degree. That's that's radio in the twenty-first right. century. Right. And
3: I guess every generation has their old you know, for for me when I was growing up, the tastemakers for me were were the were like the WNEW DJs. You know, the guys that are actually are all in mm-hmm. series now. Pat St. John, Dennis mm-hmm. Elsis, you know, Earl Bailey, Carol mm-hmm. Miller. Like those were my those were my filters. Those were the people that made the playlists on on freeform radio in the nineteen seventies that really To find what I was, I was listening to. Mm -hmm. And they were a select group of people at a really small station, but so influential. And, and now it just seems everything is more dispersed. Like I, you know, I, the whole Spotify thing is a whole separate issue. I wouldn't, I don't listen to streaming music or, or Spotify. And I don't know who any of these people are. And I don't know what, what credibility they have that makes their playlist any more valid than my playlist.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, well, what action. made Carol Miller more valid than you, what you chose to listen to in your bedroom, though?
3: Because at the time, I knew that she would, had the cachet of being on that particular that particular station. I mean, maybe it's not the best example because
1: people outside of that, I listened to NDW But yeah, I knew what you were right. talking about. Is
3: that. is that is that that group of people? There was just something. Of, I, it's hard to actually articulate. I can't. I can't really say what, what. I just knew that when those DJs came on the radio, I trusted judgment there was something there was a continuity about what they were doing there mm-hmm. was a there was the way they were talking about the music to me there was just something about that that just kind of branded that station and that mm-hmm. group of people to me um I, you know i can't I, I i know that i know that the spotify playlists and and so-called tastemakers and all of that is the rage right now and i know there's a lot of them but i guess i'm at a point in my life where i i don't i i don't need somebody to do that
1: for me anymore mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. right and yeah and it's just and it's just changed yeah it's, it's just, just it's just something that's different just now. there's
3: there's too many you know i i don't know how many playlists there are at spotify I imagine there's in there the- are
1: many but there's some main ones like there's one called rap caviar which mm. they judge it by in the old days it was arbitron would tell you there, you know the ranking you know the rating and the share and all that and now it's by f- uh, followers of the playlist and so mm-hmm. like rap caviar is maybe 20 million followers or something and there's like one main person who's the curator that and i bet you love the word curator <laughs> I, I, I don't but it, but know. again
3: but but to be fair too i'm you know i'm very jaded i'm you know i'm i'm a i'm a music snob i'm an elitist when it comes to the music that i consume and the way i consume it and you know it's one thing being 17 years old and listening to wnew mm-hmm. but at this point in my life like there's nobody i would let curate music for me like that's my job now right you know, i curate music for other people now <laughs> yeah
1: which is cool yeah um, rap yeah, caviar c yeah. uh 11 11- just over 11 million followers. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, Bob Lefsets, do you ever read Bob Lefset's? And it's funny you're making the face because every time we're with Steve Leeds, our friend um, at SiriusXM, Marconi will say Lefsetz said, and Steve Leeds says, would you stop quoting Bob Lefsets? You know, <laughs> so he's this like polarizing dude in the industry. He's but- very
3: he's very polarizing. And, and it's actually, it's weird for me too because he was, uh, uh, early on, he was a fan of my band Porcupine Tree and he wrote about them a lot. Although at the time I didn't realize he was probably being paid to write about them mm-hmm. um, yeah I my take now is that if Bob Le said the sky is blue then I would be sure it wasn't <laughs> um interesting uh, you know he, his advocacy is is very slow I'm not I'm not a not a fan do you think of he's of
1: getting paid to write some of the stuff um, he's writing I have no doubt by uh, are, do you do you agree because Ashley um who's our, our engineer Ashley um has worked at Sirius XM and has dealt with him. Off and on, you know, with podcasts and everything. So she knows her, him, much better than
3: yeah, no, Kaylee he, does. He, his, his uh, you know, I, again, I, I have a, I have a set of values about how music should be consumed both uh, uh, on the, you know, recording side and at concerts. And when I see Bob Lefts that's, you know, waving the flag for streaming and giving away music for free and how great it is that people can, you know, take pictures on their cell phones at concerts. Like, that's just not, I, I find the that whole... Uh, philosophy just anathema to my values, and so not a fan.
1: Well, it's interesting, you can already tell if you're listening, if a person you are, and this is by no means an insult or. I wear or it anything. on my sleeve. I wear it on my sleeve. Yeah, it's no, it, which is kind of cool because you know, you you mentioned you have your ethics and your values, and maybe we should go back and state how you what you were before. Sure, a, a, a manager, and then people will say, "Oh, I get it. Why he's uh, the the." Uh-
3: the, the book on me is very simple is that i grew up uh, in in the the late 70s i was a teenager in in the late 70s and so my world was fm radio was cream magazine was led zeppelin was the who was you know the beatles that was that was my world and and for me music was kind of, this, it was more more of a soundtrack to my life and more of a process internal to, to my life. So, you know, I would get my allowance every week. I'd have $10 and I'd go down, well, I lived in upstate New York, and I'd go down to Hilton Music in Troy, New York, and I'd spend two hours in the record store leafing through all the records until I found the one I wanted. And I would take that record home. I'd spend my entire allowance on it. I'd take that record home. I'd open it up. I'd take out the inserts. I'd take out the lyric sheet. I'd put it on. I'd make sure my speakers were angled at exactly the right angle. I'd look at the artwork and I would immerse myself in that experience. And it was like a religious experience. It was so, everything about it was, it was tactile. It was auditory. It was, it was just an experience from the, from the moment I left my house to go buy the record to listening to it. And I was invested in that music. You Mm -hmm. know, it wasn't like I would go spend that $10 on a record and I'd listen to it. 10 seconds of one song and then I'd skip to the next one. Like I would listen to that whole album because that's what I just bought.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And, and so I always, I always had an appreciation for that sense of it. It was music listening was never a casual or passive experience for me. It was always an active experience mm-hmm. and it required investment and it required me to spend money and, and appreciate it for art for which, which, which is what I've always viewed my the rock and jazz that I like to be. And so when I became a manager, I was guided by that set of values. And when I started being a manager in the early 2000s, a lot of those values had fallen by the wayside. You know, it was all about putting one hit single on an album and nine tracks of filler. And and music started becoming disposable and streaming started and music started being devalued. And that $10 album or $15 album that I would buy would has transformed into, you know, the amount of money that I spent on a single album is now what people spend a month to get access to a million songs. And so it, Mm -hmm. it cheapens and devalues that. And the, the, there's no such thing as packaging anymore or lyric sheets or artwork or, or even investing in the music the way I did. And so when I became a manager, I wanted to make sure that those values were the things that, guided my decisions because i Mm. i believed in my heart that if you give people something of value they will pay for it and if you give people something of little value it will become disposable and so with my bands i made sure that all of the packaging was good you know it's a funny story at atlantic records one of the first things we did on our first record was we wanted to do a cd with a gatefold because it wanted to kind of get that kind of album feel back. And I remember I was talking to a product manager who had just started there. And I said to him, I was like, we'd like to do this as a gatefold. And he looked at me and he said, a what?
1: I Didn't know what it meant.
3: I said, a gatefold, you know, a gatefold, like a gatefold album. And he looked, he's like, what do you, what is a gatefold? It has a gate in it. I'm like, no, a gatefold, <laughs> like a gatefold album. And he said, can you bring me a, an example? So I went to him a few days later with an album with a gatefold on it. And he's, oh, his eyes lit up. He said, oh, you mean special packaging. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought, this is exactly, this is emblematic of the challenge that we're going to have. And so we made sure that all of the albums had, you know, uh, art the, the right artwork, that they were produced and mixed at the highest caliber Um that that every aspect of it adhered to those values that I had grown up with. And sure enough, it was very successful because people really wanted that. There was mm-hmm. a real real need for that. You know, we started doing deluxe editions and the live shows became more immersive. We started getting bigger and bigger in screens and commissioning films from, from great artists. And we, we instituted surround sound at the shows. And everything about it was held up to this value of of aesthetics that, as I said, guided pretty much every decision I made. And it turned out to be successful because my instinct about it was, is that in the age of music becoming more disposable and live shows becoming more casual and less religious, that um, there was still a need and still a want for this. And that turned out to be correct. And, and um, if more than anything else, I'm proud for having adhered to those values as a way to guide my decisions rather than money or fame or popularity because it turned out that the bands were successful as a result of being branded as, as paying attention to those things. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there can, you go.
1: Can, and uh, can you uh, rattle off some of the names of the bands that you managed and some sure. of the names of the bands that you uh, were, for which you were an agent?
3: Uh, I managed uh, porcupine tree. And then later on, Stephen Wilson, I managed King Crimson. I managed living color. I managed a band called anathema, then not a lot of, People over here know, but is very big in Europe. Um, I did a lot of consulting for bands because there were a lot of bands that I liked and believed in, but didn't want to take on full time because I didn't feel I could give them the time and attention that they needed. Um, And then as an agent, uh, I did uh, the Dixie. I just did the Dixie Dregs reunion tour last year. Uh, I had a a worked with uh, Jordan Rudess of Dream Theater, who's the keyboard player of Dream Theater had a couple of young bands that I was developing a band called Royal Canoe from Canada, and a band called Bentney from Berkeley, and then I also variously worked on shows for yes, uh King Crimson and Stephen Wilson on the agency side as well.
4: Mm-hmm. well
3: mm-hmm. mostly a lot of progressive rock okay. so how'd you get into all this? You went to school for this? I did not. They did not have uh They did not have school then, and they did not have uh, Managing Your artist 6th edition, available at fine bookstores everywhere. Uh, (laughs) And Amazon. And and, and for Kindle, uh, for those of you that read on Kindle. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. I fell into it by mistake. I was actually working as an assistant district attorney in the Brooklyn DA's office. Um, And through a series of circumstances, wound up taking the leave of absence, and my college roommate at the time was managing Hanson, which is why I presume you all heard Mbop at the top of the show. And uh, I started helping him out with Hanson and kind of watching from the sidelines, watching things in the music business with every intention of returning to the DA's office after my leave of absence. And uh, the company that he had had an artist who was signed to Lava Records. And they sent me to New York City to meet with the A&R guy for this artist. And I wound up hitting it off with this A&R guy who to this day, 20 years later, is one of my best friends and somebody who I, I love immensely, who has like the best ears of anyone I've ever met. Um, I'll say his name. It's Andy Carp. if you're listening, Andy. That's a shout-out to you. Um, With the K-A-R-P. Well, yes, K-A-R-P. And uh, I walked into his office, uh, and I saw on his wall, he had posters of Genesis, and, and uh, he had uh, just a whole bunch of great albums hanging on his wall. Uh, and I knew that we were going to be kindred spirits right then, And we started talking and he's a big progressive rock fan. And he told me that he didn't have the capacity to sign any bands because at the time, this is 2000, it was not really the right time to sign a progressive rock band on Lava Records. Lava at the time had Kid Rock and Uncle Cracker and, you know, it was the height of the new metal phase. Mm. And uh, there was a band he liked uh, called Porcupine Tree, but he he didn't have faith in the Person that was managing them. And as we were talking, I kind of joked with him and I said, if I manage them, we just sign them. And he laughed at me and he said, yeah, you go manage them and then come back to me. And so with every intention of returning to the DA's office, I, I let that thought, you know, roll around in my head. And I, on, on a whim, reached out to the band's manager in England. And I said, I have no experience in the music business whatsoever. I have no idea what I'm doing but I think I might be able to get you a record deal. Will you let me try to get your band a record deal? And we talked about it, and he said, sure, get my band a record deal. And I did a showcase for the band in New York City at the bottom line, and I brought Andy to the show. And uh, the next day, he called me down to his office and made an offer and signed him. And it was pretty crazy, so that's how I got into it. And even then, I never intended to stay with it. I thought, oh, okay, now... I'll I can tell all my lawyer friends that I got a band a record deal. is not a great story, you know, uh, for around the campfire. But it actually wound up working out. The band got successful, and I started becoming messianic as to how, how I was going to make this band popular. And I was going to do it despite all of the hurdles in the way, and I was going to do it the way that I just described, by making sure that the value, that the band was branded as having those values, and aesthetics of the bands that I grew up loving in the 1970s. And mm-hmm. it worked, and it was very successful, and I'm really, more than anything else, proud that it was successful because of, of value-laden philosophy rather than a monetary or popularity-laden philosophy. Because the idea was, if we give these people this level of quality, it will attract an audience, and it did. And it was very validating. Did you miss law? No. (laughs) No, but it prepared me very well because I knew that, you know, a lot of people who I I started working with in the music business were very intimidated by a lot of people at the record, you know, the record company president or promo guys or, you know, everybody was very sycophantic and very, and to me, you know, I had been dealing with, you know, cases with murderers and rapists and defense lawyers, and so I I couldn't take any of these people seriously. Like, I really wasn't intimidated (laughs) by them. And I wasn't, I wasn't cowed or, you know, impressed. And so I didn't miss it at all. And as it became more successful, I really, it became a mission for me, it became mm-hmm. a mission for me to kind of bring this music and bring this, this sense of aesthetics in a time where it didn't exist. And, and so my, my the, 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 Messiah, the messianic quality of it is what drove me to staying with
1: it. Mm. So here's a two-part question. I'll give you the first part, and then Kaylee's going to read the second part. The first question is, why did you stop being a a manager and become an agent? And then Kaylee, the second part of the question is?
0: Uh, How different is the environment and the duties that come with being an agent to a manager?
1: Okay.
3: Uh, The answer to the first question is, uh, I was getting bored with it. Because I had accomplished what I had set out to accomplish, Mm -hmm. and I didn't that I could add more to it at that point you know one one of the things I'm actually proud of is that I kept all of my artists off of streaming services uh, for 15 years and which is one of the reasons that they were successful because their music actually had value and people actually spent money to listen to it uh, but it was getting to the point where my main artists n- wanted and needed to get on Spotify and Apple Music. And I knew that I was not going to be able to be the person that could preside over that because that was anathema to my, my personal values. I could have done it, but it wouldn't have given me any joy because I feel that that devalued the art, devalued the music, and, and, and commodified it in a way that was at odds with my sense of aesthetics on what music as art should be. And so it was a combination of those two things of realizing that I'd kind of like done everything I'd done, you know, every album that I had done with them was more successful than the last one, which was amazing in a time where people were buying less and less albums. Yeah. But I felt that my luck was going to run out and I didn't want to preside over the downside of it. And, and uh, you know, I'd been doing it for almost 20 years and I was just, I needed to do something else. Uh, part two. Um very, very different. Uh, and frankly, the agency side was much easier and less stressful because I was only doing one aspect. You know, as a manager, I was doing 20 different mm-hmm. things. I was overseeing tours, I was overseeing promotion. I was overseeing videos. I was overseeing relations with the label. I was dealing with publishing. I had all you know my plate was full of 20 things. On the agency side, it was just it was just one the one aspect. And because I had been involved in the live side of things because most of my bands were touring bands. I knew that side of the business pretty well. So actually it wasn't as challenging to me as I thought it would be. And that was kind of a disappointment. I thought it was going to be much more challenging and it actually turned out to be very easy, um, which was unfulfilling mm-hmm. because I, I, I knew it very well. I knew all the promoters that I was dealing with as an agent because one of the things I made sure of as a manager was to always, always go on the road with my bands, meet the promoters, schmooze with the promoters, thank them, make sure, you know, I made sure that every single show that my band played, I sent a thank you to the promoter and I was very loyal to all of my promoters. And so by the time I got to the agency side, I knew all these people already and I had a really good relationship with them. So there was no even a challenge of trying to like break into new promoters or whatever because I, I continued my loyalty to them. So it turned out to be much, much easier uh, and ultimately, to be honest, much less Gratifying mm. because it didn't have the same challenge it, to it. It was it was just not. It didn't challenge me the way I wanted it to be challenged. Mm. And it was also just systemically. It was venture I was in charge of everything, and and at a large agency, it's very bureaucratic. It's very corporate. It's just a different kind of infrastructure that just wasn't to my. I couldn't thrive there. You know, you had asked me originally about the. The regional system. Yes. And I, like, I, you know, one of my conditions was that I was going to opt out of that. Like, I couldn't, like, it didn't even make sense to me that I wasn't going to be booking every show for my band all around the country or -hmm. or all around the world. And so I was kind of on the outside of that because most of the agents were in that system.
1: Mm -hmm. So. And they were okay with that, with you doing? Yeah.
3: I, you know, I did, I never had a problem with that because, again, I knew all the promoters. Like, I didn't need somebody in Seattle or on the West coast to introduce me to a promoter because I'd been booking shows' been all my bands had been playing with these promoters for twenty years, so I knew all of them anyway so it was there was never like a problem with that mm. you know i don't know how the regional agents thought about that because I didn't have much interaction with it, but it, it wouldn't have worked for me otherwise. There was no way I could let somebody else book one of my artists because that's my job I'm supposed to be looking out for the mm. band, and I guess maybe you know you can take the the manager out of the boy, but you can't take the boy out (laughs) of the manager. Like I, I I went, I I went into the agent side of things with my manager hat on. And so it was more of a hybrid job for me. So I was very non-traditional agent as I was a non-traditional manager.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I know there's a new agency, um, (coughs) based in, I think Philly and San Diego sound talent group. And, um, a number of people had been at UTA and they left, to, to create their own, own agency because of some of the things you just said about APA just too corporate and too structured and they needed a little bit more freedom and needed to be a little bit more entrepreneurial. Right.
3: Right. Uh, and that, that was my impression. You know, I, I was I was almost like an observer at APA more than a, a participant. And it was it was, you know, it was interesting. And I, I really one of the things I wanted to challenge myself was, was to really understand and learn the nitty gritty of agency contracts. And, you know, I got to as a manager, I had the, I had the best agent, you know, that I could possibly have, and so I relied on him and trusted him completely. Who was that? Steve Martin. Oh, mm-hmm. who who, you know, I, I, I can't speak highly enough about. Um, but as a manager, I didn't have to go over uh, an agency contract line by line, you know, fixed costs versus mm-hmm. variable costs, and so it was really interesting to kind of pull the curtain back on that and really see how that worked. And so that was, that was an education. Um, but as I said, like I, I, was, it was important for me to make sure that I, you know, if I had a client, I was going to be responsible for that client and I wasn't going to say to that client, oh, I'm going to book half your shows, but this person that you've never met who's on the West Coast is going to book some of these shows for you. So, but again, yeah. that's, that's just me. I know that's, that's out of the mainstream of how they work, but yes, it, there was a lot of structural problems. And I imagine all big agencies are like that.
2: Yeah, I remember years ago teaching Uh, One of the things an artist should do is if you have between two agencies, for instance, and uh, the same agent keeps coming out to see your shows and loves you and wants to sign you and so on. And then an agency B, three or four different agents come out and they rotate because of the regional structure. You need to go with the depth in that agency rather than maybe that one agent would die for you. And maybe you get fired, and you know, for some s- silly reason, then you're out again. So I remember doing that because it was that that structure
3: that you had to deal with as as an artist. And I imagine that you know, and it must work for some artists because you know, even in this day and age, I, I know that that structure is a, is a vestige of an older age. But the fact that a lot of the big agencies still use it, it must it must work. Yeah. And if artists, yeah. and again, it's like anything else, as long as everything's consensual, if it's okay with the artist. And that's great. Whatever works for them. Mm -hmm. It it, just—it's again for for me. It just wasn't—it wasn't conducive to the way I thought that that someone should be responsible to their client.
1: Yeah. When you signed bands at APA, did you need corporate approval, or you—they just you had free reign to do what you had Free reign,
3: but again, too, just to be. Clear. You know, I know there's a lot of younger agents, people that come up through the system there that have had different restrictions than I did. You know, I came in as a 20 year veteran mm-hmm. <laughs> with, with, with vast experience and actually my boss at APA was the agent who I had worked with as a manager for 20 years. So, you know, uh, we understood each other completely. So I had, I had free reign and I never, nobody ever questioned mm-hmm. it and that would, you know, that's what would have been, if if someone had, if I had been in a position where someone would have been able to veto one of my choices. I would never have done it. I just couldn't,
1: couldn't do that. Right. And were they looking, uh, quarterly, uh, semi-annually or every year, you know, you got to hit this number. Here's the number you need. Yeah, to there hit was a lot year. of
3: number. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was very, it was very number driven. And which, you know, again, that's how these companies are structured. That's not how I, how I would do it, but that's, that's how they did it. And a lot of agents were under a lot of pressure, uh, to make those numbers. And a lot mm. of agents didn't make it. There's a lot of turnover. You know, mm-hmm. it's, very, it's very hard to do that. You know, a lot of a lot of these agents had one big act that was their, you know, main cash cow. Cash cow. Yeah. But if yeah. that, but if that band took a year or two off the road, then that agent was in jeopardy. Yeah. And so that's that's the flaw of the system is that is that cash cow is great for the year that the cash cow is touring, but for the two years they decide to take off, or three years they decide to take off, that agent is really having to make up for that income, and that's mm-hmm. that's really difficult to do, especially with. You know, what they call baby bands. Yeah, know, who are playing for ten dollars a ticket at clubs of a hundred to one hundred and twenty five capacities. Just mathematically it's impossible to, to make those numbers unless mm. you're really lucky.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Can we do some agent one oh one? Sure. Stuff right now. Just uh, I want to throw some terms out, and if you can kind of ex- like
3: word association, yeah, very, yeah, <laughs> and,
1: and just kind of explain um, what they are, okay? Because we already talked about uh, territory, and you mentioned responsible, responsible agent. Um, how about uh, the term challenge? Oh, it's a challenge. to challenge like a booking, uh, right? A so
3: challenges is um, so I I call up the Mercury Lounge and say I want my band to be playing on December eighteenth. And they say, well, somebody already is holding that night, you're a second hold or you're a third hold. And it's, it's this hierarchical system whereby whoever gets that date first has the priority. And so when I call up and they say, oh, well, you're third hold for that date. If I really want that date, then I challenge for it, which means to say you have to go back to the, the promoter has to go back to the first hold and second hold and say, hey, we have somebody who's challenging for the date. You either need to take this or you need to let it go. Mm. And, you know, it becomes, it becomes, it's hard to do. My my record is that I, I you know, everybody had their own personal records for how high a hold they were, and they got a gig. Mine was 13th. I was 13th old, and I actually wound up getting a gig. Uh, How'd you do that? It just, 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 did, oh, luck. Lock, yeah. I mean, you have to understand, too, is that is that you never know when a promoter tells you what hold you are if you are actually really that hold. I mean, yeah. maybe the promoter doesn't like your band and says, oh, you're eighth hold for that night, even though he's got no, he or she's got nobody holding that show. Right. So challenging is, 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 is it, the, the, when it becomes really interesting is like, the, and to go back to your question, the one thing I found very challenging about being an agent is that it's like putting together, it's like an LSAT puzzle, is that you line up all of your gigs over, let's say a 20, a 20 gig tour, and you have all the locations and the venues, and you have holds on all of them, and then you need to start challenging the holds. Well, if you lose one of those gigs, then it's like a house of cards and you have to start moving everything around mm. and you have to re-slot and re-everything. And that's where the challenge comes in. So it's always good. I, by the by the by, my second year there, I was getting holds eight months in advance to make sure I
1: was like first or second. Mm. That's That was the trick. So okay. there was a lot of pre-planning with your bands. Yeah, and to because sure. of the
3: environment we're in right now where everybody's touring because nobody's making money on the recording side, there's way too many bands. It's oversaturated touring. So it's not uncommon to six months ahead of time to ask for a hold and find out that you're 10th or 11th hold Cause there's 10 artists in front of you. So it's, it's tricky. Like that's a real tricky aspect of it.
1: Mm-hmm. Is that a particular type of venue or is it pretty much across the board, across whether the board, it's a hundred cap room uh, or I had the entire,
3: I had the entire Dixie Dregs tour all mapped out. And then I lost a challenge. I don't remember where it was. I lost a challenge and uh, maybe it was Florida and I had to redo the entire tour. Because because I ha- I, then I couldn't switch one thing around, and then that meant I had to switch another thing around, and I really had to start from scratch. Mm. Um, but then the same thing has happened to me with bands that are just starting out with baby bands, too. It's across the board. There's just, it's, the touring world is, is just oversaturated.
1: Okay. Um, talk
3: about settling. Settling the show? Yes. So at the end of the night, you, uh, a, a good tour manager, if there is one, or the agent, calls to the promoter and says, okay, how many tickets did we sell? And what do you owe us? So there's two ways of doing deals. There's a door deal where the band gets a percentage of the door or there's a guarantee. Mm-hmm. And the way deals are structured is that let's say it's a door deal and the venue has a hundred capacity and it's $10 a ticket and the artist gets 50%. Mm-hmm. So they sell a hundred tickets. That's a hundred tickets times $10. That's a thousand dollars gross. And the artist gets $500. Mm-hmm. That's an easy settlement. Um, then there's deals that are structured where they're, they're, Uh, percentage deals. So the artist will get a guarantee of $10,000 plus, you know, 40% of the back end over a certain amount of money. So the way the deals are structured depend on how you settle the show. So you Mm -hmm. never exactly know, you know what the most you can make is every agent contract or every contract that you issue to a promoter has the, what's called the walkout potential. The most Mm -hmm. that an artist can make in a single night and somewhere between the guarantee and the walkout potential is what has to be settled. Mm-hmm. And there's costs. A lot of promoters have costs. Sometimes they have to rent rooms. Sometimes they have to hire security. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they charge for catering. They charge for, you know... Expenses. Expenses, right. Mm-hmm. Right, and then there's there's those are the fixed expenses. Then there's, you know, uh, per, uh, the performance societies, you know, ASCAP and BMI costs, which are variable, and security costs, which are variable. So it becomes, a, it's a, like a real science had to do it and most promoters are pretty straightforward and pretty honest but some of them are not and you always have to make sure that the numbers are right Mm -hmm. you know
1: well i think uh andy left has been right
3: oh oh you like that
1: yeah yeah because i say that because we need to we're not going to end on that note are we really (laughs) oh we're on that note oh wow which is a g flat minor sharp And uh, so um, we need to thank Andy for being here today. What do you you say, Dr. Stavon? Yes.
2: Very much so. Very great.
1: Very informational. Yeah. Yeah, very much. This will be a podcast to listen to. And if you listen to this podcast, hit rewind on your cassette deck and listen to the podcast (laughs) all over again. Yes. Next week, Jordan Chalmers, Lifestyle and Influencer Marketing Manager from Atlantic Records. Mm. So looking forward to that. But we want to thank Andy one more time for coming out.
3: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank
1: you. Thank you, Kaylee, for reading your one tweet. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. All, All the way, the from, way Ohio. from Ohio for All that one tweet. All the way from Ohio to read the one tweet. God. Good for her. We yes. want to thank Ashley Veltner an echo in here for too. Um, continuing to do the <laughs> best German engineering man has ever That's heard. what
2: they're known for. That's
1: what they're known for. So thank you for your German engineering, Ashley Veltner. Ashley Veltner. Yes. Dr. Esteban Marconi, thank you so much.
2: Oh, and also we must thank my co-host, Professor David K Philp.
1: Yes, I am the K, the Kirk, David the Like Murray the K. I'm David the K, David the Kirk Philp. Uh, here at the University of William Patterson. Are you
2: the sixth Beetle?
1: I'm uh I'm the fifth Beetle, but I'm a it's a fifth hold. <laughs> there we go. We're Whoa. ending with that. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> so uh we want to thank everybody. Any any <laughs> yeah, couldn't get any worse than that. So we we'll thank you for listening to Music as One or More here on Brave New Radio. At the end of every show, Andy, you know what we say? And it is not hello. And you could say it with me once you find out what I'm gonna say. At the end of every show, we say. Are